You're only one worthy, Lord Jesus, the only one found worthy. And so we honor you this morning with our time, God, and with our hearts, God. We turn our hearts towards you and we say, Lord, we give you the glory, the honor, the praise, the power, Lord Jesus. You are worthy of it, God. And so we give you um, the best of ourselves here this morning, Lord. Would you guide us and lead us in all things? Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us this morning, God? We want to be changed by your presence. We want to be changed by your Holy Spirit, by speaking to us this morning, God. God, we love you, and uh, we recognize the love that you have for us as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start a new series uh, leading up to Christmas. And this is a traditional, in the Christian world, this is a traditional uh, Christmas verse. This is a prophecy from Isaiah regarding the Messiah, regarding the Christ that is to come. And we'll be focusing on verse 6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I love that verse. And as I've gotten, I've had the privilege to dive into that, uh, this section of scripture this week. And um, I just, I've found so much uh, beauty, so much wisdom the wisdom of God. I've seen his plans from the beginning of time up until this day. We've been singing about what Jesus did, how he loves us. When it says in verse 7 that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish that, we were singing about God's zeal, his passion, his, his jealousy. Uh, as they started singing that, I, I heard an, it was kind of an offhand comment. I don't know if it was on the radio. I was driving, traveling a little bit. Um, I don't even remember what it was in regards to, but uh, one of the people speaking said, um, he said, you know, jealousy is when jealousy is when you have uh, a feeling about something that is yours. And envy is when you want something that somebody else. Jealousy is when you want something that's yours. And when it says that God's jealous for us. Christ died to ransom us, to purchase us into God's family. We were once far off. We were once enemies of God. And when God is jealous for us, he wants what is his. He wants our heart. It's improper for our heart to be anywhere else. It's improper for us to have idols, things in our life that take the place of God. And he's righteous in his jealousness because he paid the price for us. He created us. He ransomed us. He purchased us. Um, 
that's another another message. But uh, so Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, we're going to be looking especially there's four names that this Messiah will be called. And so we're going to have four messages on these names. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I imagine that this verse, uh, if I was someone who didn't know about Jesus, if I was reading the Bible from beginning till here, from Genesis to here, uh, I would be confused, I believe. Right? Okay, there's a son, a child that's going to be born, a son that's going to be given. That's not so confusing. The government will be on his shoulders, so that's, that's cool. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay. Mighty God. A son, a child. When it says a child is born, it's speaking to the humanity. Jesus was 100% man. A son is given. A son is given. He's pre-existing. He's given. It's speaking to his divinity. This is confusing, I'm assuming, for the Jews. It's consuming for some, confusing for someone uh, who would read Scripture from beginning to here. And it's borderline. I say borderline. I'm not, I'm not speaking against God's word. It's borderline blasphemy. The only fulfillment I propose to you is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at these four names. He was called Wonderful Counselor. And I'll give you the, I guess, the, the synopsis, the summary, the nutshell version. And I'll appeal to you that you would surrender your life to Jesus based on this description of him. He's a wonderful counselor, meaning he's wonderfully wise. He's mighty God. He's mightily strong. He's everlasting father. He's eternally paternal. He's eternally caring. And he's the prince of peace. When you surrender your life to God, when you submit your life to Christ, you're coming to one who is wonderfully wise. You have problems. We have issues. We have struggles. The Jews that he's speaking to, Isaiah is speaking to, uh, we're going to look at their gloom. They were covered in gloom. They were living in gloom. He's wonderfully wise. He's mightily powerful. And he's eternally caring. You know, if when you come to Christ, those are aspects of his personality. And when you submit to his rule, he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of shalom. He brings peace into your life. When you submit your life to Christ and you follow his counsel and you trust in his might, and you surrender to his love, his fatherhood, he'll lead you to that beautiful word, shalom, well-being and peace in all areas. This is who Christ is. And so uh, I, would, I was looking at this, and I'd, uh, so if you could just receive that, download that into your heart. The God that I'm coming to is all-knowing. All He's omniscient, Right? He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's eternally fa everlasting father. Uh, he's omnipresent. 
He has all these characteristics. He's the one, the only one, that you should entrust with your life. And so I appeal to you strongly. I beg you, surrender your life to Christ. I'm going to look at Wonderful Counselor, but if you know me, I, I want to go back and I want to dive in and look at the context. I want to look at where this scripture is coming out of. And so in Isaiah 9, verse 1, uh, in chapter 8, there was a pronouncement of judgment. Judgment was come upon the people, and it was coming in the form of the Assyrians. Okay, and uh, one of the historians I was reading called the Assyrian, the Assyrians, historian, Assyrian. Uh, I need the Holy Spirit to speak, or I, never mind. Uh, I need the Holy Spirit's help. Holy Spirit, help me. The Assyrians were called the Lords of Torture. That was one of their titles. Jesus, wonderful counselor, the Assyrians, Lords of Torture. They were an evil, wicked uh, uh, empire who celebrated and gloried in their ability to come up with creative ways to inflict pain, fear, and torture. They were demonic. And they came as judgment on the people. And immediately following that judgment, God's so good, he gives hope. In chapter 9, he says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Is it up here still? Is this ESV, Chase? But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, He's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah 9.1. He took them, what God is doing. So I want to answer four questions. What is God doing? How is God going to do it? Through whom? Who is going to do it? And why is he going to do it? Okay? So hopefully I'll answer those questions for you. So this is what God is doing. He's taking them from gloom to glory. He's bringing them, he's prophesying. Isaiah is saying, God will take you from gloom to glory. That's what he's doing. In verse 6 it says, the government will be on this child, this son, the government will be on his shoulders. And we're going to look at what kind of government that is. So in in verse 2 it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. You have multiplied the nation. This is what God's doing. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you. Can go on. Am I challenging you? Can we go to verse three? Verse four. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is what God is doing. He's taking the yoke, the rod, the staff, and he's breaking the oppression 
And it says in verse 4, as the days of Midian. All right, when I came to that, I thought, days of Midian. Days of Midian. I want to know about these days of Midian. Because that's the what. God is breaking the oppression. He's bringing joy. He's bringing a great light. I want to know how he's doing it. He's doing it as the days of Midian. In Judges chapter 7, we have a story. You can read it later. It's the story of Gideon. Okay? You may know this story where God whittles down Gideon's army, essentially from 20,000 to 300. Okay? And keep in mind, we're talking about God is, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. All right? So when you hear about the wonderful counsel of God, it may not look like what you think. It looks kind of like the days of Midian, the story of Gideon, where you're, you take your army from 20,000 to 300. Scripture tells us that God said, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And in fact, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of people, of man. The, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest wisdom of man. And so how is God doing it? It's as the days of Midian... And essentially, the way that Gideon defeated the Midian army is God whittled his army down piece by piece. There's wonderful counsel there, and it seems odd. And he has a test, and then every time he puts his army to this test, he eliminates a large portion of the army until he has 300 men to face the vast army. And they surround, you can read the story in Judges 7, essentially... And this is what I, this blew my mind when I read this, so I hope this is deeply meaningful to you. They surrounded the camp, 300 men. They surrounded the camp. They had jars, right? And they had torches, and they had trumpets, all right? So they had jars, torches, and trumpets. And with a mighty yell, they broke their jars. They held aloft their torches, and they blew their trumpets. And the army was in disarray, and fear came upon them. It says the Lord did it. The people obeyed, but the Lord did it, right? And the army turned on itself, and basically they slaughtered themselves. They fought against themselves, and they scattered and were chased off, and the enemy was defeated. Okay? And I hope I can connect these dots for you here because, uh, to me, we're, we're no Isaiah 9, 6. We know this is about Jesus, but he's saying he's going to do a thing that includes his son, includes his child that will be born, who has these names, but it will be similar. The strategy will be similar to the days of Midian. He's breaking oppression. He's bringing light. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 4, uh, I brought my little Bible today, so I got the little words and the little pages. In Matthew chapter 4, after John was arrested, Matthew 4.12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. And the, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The government that God is prophesying through Isaiah about is the kingdom of heaven. The government that will be on this son's shoulders is the kingdom of God. Right? And we're going to look at our response to the kingdom of God when it comes near. Um, We're going to look at that shortly. And so Isaiah is saying to this land, this is in the southern portion uh, of Israel. These were the people that were closest uh, to the Assyrians. And when you look at the Assyrians, they were cruel. They were, I said, they, historians called them lords of torture. And in fact, uh, the hated Samaritans are a direct result of the intermingling of, of Israel, Israelites and Assyrians. Samaritans were basically people whose ancestors were half Jew, half Assyrian. And that speaks to the animosity. Um, But Jesus comes to them, and this prophecy written hundreds of years before is fulfilled in their hearing. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near, those who knew the the Old Testament, they know where they live. They know what's happened historically. They know the prophecies that are spoken. And they would look at this Jesus. And I believe there there was cognitive dissonance in this verse. This verse is like, if if you were if there was a uh, if you had a Jewish mind, I think this verse would stick in your brain and give you all kinds of problems, give you all kinds of questions, and then you look at the life of Jesus and you have some serious questions to answer. Okay, so the what God is establishing a government, He's bringing a son that will be born, a son that will be given, a child that will be mighty God, an everlasting Father. It's confusing, and He's doing it in a manner similar to what he did in Gideon. Okay, so Gideon's time, they had jars, they had torches, and they had trumpets. And we also know that of this kingdom, of its increase, there will be no end, right? Of the kingdom of God, this kingdom, of its increase, there will be no end. Church, I think our role has to do with jars, torches, and trumpets, all right? I feel like this is a word from the Lord. This is directly from Scripture. You know, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, get my little Bible with my little pages, and I'm going to turn there. You can too. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the church. He's talking about the role of the apostles, the role of Christians in this world, And he gives us a word picture to help us understand how our lives are to be considered in this this, uh, spiritually historic season that we live in. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4, let's say, uh, I want to read verse 6, I guess, and then go on from there. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory 
displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. We carry this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the the indwelling of God's spirit. We carry this treasure in jars of clay. Okay, Gideon's force was to a comic degree outnumbered. They were ridiculously outnumbered, underpowered. They didn't have weapons. They had torches, and they had trumpets, right? And they had jars of clay. I think the role of the church in the world that we live in, when darkness seems overwhelming, when we live what feels like a time of gloom, We are to be crushed like broken vessels. We are to allow our lives to be broken. Now, those people, they broke the vessels. They remained alive, right? The the jar of clay is like our body, our tent. Okay? Our soul, our spirit is sealed. But we can submit ourselves to being broken before the world in a way that we will remain vibrant and alive. We can humbly allow our lives to be broken. And it signals a victory. It begins a victory for Christ. They had jars of clay. They had jars that they broke. And I think that Jesus who said, you try to save your life, You'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. We need to be jars of clay, willing to be broken. Our plans, our thoughts, our ideas for our own life, that shell that we create around us to protect us, our pride, we need to allow that to be broken. Gideon's army had jars of clay, They had torches. They had a light, right? And they had trumpets. A trumpet is a a signal. It's a herald. We need to let our light shine before men, and we need to proclaim the gospel. We need to enter the world, go into the gloom, go into the darkness. It says in Hebrews of, of Christians of that time, they went and visited believers who'd been arrested. It says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, knowing that they had a better and an abiding possession. And I think that gives us a sign of how we're to be. Not hoarding, not guarding, not protecting, not aggressively defending our own, but joyfully accepting. Knowing that we have a treasure in heaven, we are to go with that attitude into the world, holding our light, heralding our trumpet, Heralding the gospel. Good works. Preaching the gospel. Humbly allowing our lives to be broken. 
but it's God who does it. Just in Gideon's time, it says the Lord did it. But he uses his people. He allows his people to participate. Those who will. He allows us to participate in this thing that he's doing. It is a privilege. I don't know. This, this seems like a powerful word. You got your treasure. You got your torch. You got your trumpet. I think that's God's plan through Christ for his church to see his kingdom come. We're not to build a big fortress and just kind of huddle up in here, defend ourselves, send shots out at the world, you know, fire some snarky messages here and there. We are to go into the gloom and God will bring the glory. But when it says that Christ is a wonderful counselor, his counsel sometimes is going to look like what he had Gideon do. It's going to be counterintuitive to the ways of the world. Because his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. But he's a wonderful counselor. Scripture declares this over and over, and uh, Isaiah himself declares it. Uh, Isaiah 28. Sorry, I'm breathing out loud here. Um, I've got the NIV, but I like, I like the uh, ESV sometimes. Isaiah 28, 29. It says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He's wonderful in counsel, and he's excellent in wisdom. That's who Jesus is. He's wonderful in counsel. He's excellent in wisdom. That's beautiful. Psalms talks about how he gives us his counsel. He leads us. And he brings us to glory. We can trust him. We can trust his counsel. You know, you can look through the Old Testament. I was trying to remember some instances like Jericho. That's a wonderful counsel. You know, it's a, some might call it a questionable military strategy. You can look at Jehoshaphat and Second Chronicles 20, chapter 20, verse 20. He put the worshipers at the front of the army. And they just started worshiping, and the enemy defeated itself. It's wonderful counsel, questionable strategy, according to worldly wisdom. You can look at Daniel. He didn't partake of the meat, the rich foods. He ate water and vegetables, and God made his face shine. He, he stood out beyond. He didn't submit to the ways of the world. He went into the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't bend the knee. They didn't compromise so that they could, you know, live another day and, and then, you know, make up for it later. They followed the counsel of the Lord, and God gave them victory. Sometimes wonderful counselor, wonderful counsel looks like weakness. Often, it looks like weakness, because God chooses the weak things to shame the wise. The wonderful counsel of God looks like a baby in a manger, to overthrow the greatest empire the world had known. Or to, to outlast it, to overthrow the enemy. One of the things I, I mentioned, the Assyrians were lords of torture. That was the, they came as judgment. And what's interesting is one of the things that they invented, 
during this time period, they invented, historians credit them with inventing crucifixion. And so even in that judgment, even in the, the worst devising uh, of the, the, what do you want to call it, the, uh, the cooperation of man and, and demons, they invented their destruction. When Scripture tells us that we're more than conquerors, that's what it's talking about. It says that uh, in Isaiah 9, that their boots, right, their robes, everything that they, the oppressors wore was bur- burned as fuel for the fire. The instruments of the oppressors are used not only for their destruction, but for our benefit. And the Assyrians that came with judgment invented crucifixion, which the baby, the son, the child that Isaiah is prophesying about will go to that very cross. And in that seed of evil, God is still working to destroy evil. We're more than conquerors. That is the wisdom of God. The weakness of God, a baby in a manger, a, a God on a cross. In his weakness, his weakness is far superior than the strength of the strongest of men. Isn't that beautiful? That's who God is. And so I want to tell you, in this passage, God is telling the people, I will move you from gloom to glory, but you're going to need a wonderful counselor. You're going to need advice. You need, to, you need a path. You need a way out of there. And that way is Jesus. In God's word, through the Holy Spirit, he has the answer for the problems that you're facing. He has a name for your pain. He has a name for your pain. But you have to remember that the the counsel that comes from God will not look like the wisdom of the world. James gives us an example of the wisdom that comes from God. And it's funny that we're back in James. It wasn't that, I think last time I was up here, I talked about how we should count it pure joy, right, if we face trials and then we ask for wisdom and don't doubt. We're back here at James talking about wisdom. James 3.17 says, The wisdom that comes from heaven, the wisdom, when you come to Christ, when you seek wisdom from God, when you seek wisdom from God's word, there's a test that you can give it. Because you might feel like you're getting wisdom. You know, sometimes we have ideas, maybe that pop into our head or that come from people around us or that we, people that we listen to. Um, but you can test that wisdom according to scripture. And the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then it's peace loving. It's considerate. Submissive. Full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest 
of righteousness. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. That's who God is doing this work through. He's taking us from gloom to glory. He's breaking the oppressor's rod, the influence, the the control of those who would oppress us. He breaks using their own instruments. And the person who does it is Jesus Christ, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So that's the what, that's the how, that's the who, and the why. Back to verse 7. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. God has his own purposes. And when he acts, we can look at Scripture and know he moves for our good and for his glory. Makes me think of John chapter 3. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. God's love motivated Isaiah 9, 6. It motivated him to send this child, to send this son. And he glorified Christ. Raised him from the dead. And so if you have two takeaways, personally, I want you to go to Jesus. I want you to submit and surrender your life to Christ. He's wise beyond comprehension. He's mighty beyond our understanding. He's loving and caring beyond what we can understand or ask or imagine. And the result of his reign, he's called the Prince of Peace. He brings shalom. So personally, submit and surrender your life to Christ. The the problems, the struggles, the trials that you're facing, look to him as your wonderful counselor. But it may not look Like what you think, the strategy that comes out of it, according to the wisdom of the world, may not seem like a good idea. It'll probably have you submitting. It'll probably have you humbling yourself. It'll probably have part of you being broken. It'll probably be displaying your weakness so that his power can shine through. But it's wonderful counsel. And it's a privilege to be a part of it. And the other part of this message is to the church. That we need to go and surround the gloom with our treasure in jars of clay. We need to let our light shine before men. And we need to blow the trumpet. We need to herald, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Isaiah 52, 70 said, how beautiful are the feet of those on Mount Zion who bring good news. It's beautiful to the Lord when people proclaim the good news. It's a privilege. I think there's something deep there, and I don't know that I've done. There's something in that, the jar, the torch, and the trumpet for the church. There's a strategy, the wisdom of God, the wonderful counsel, because it seems like we have an overwhelming enemy. Uh, It seems like the the odds are against the church. Things of, of darkness and evil schemes are taking place in the world. It seems like they just uh, there's a, a co- uh, cooperation of, of demons and, and men to dream up the darkest ideas that they can come up with that counters the wisdom of God, the ways of God. And it seems like they have all the power. It seems like they have all the influence. It seems like they have all the, the, <laughs> the momentum. But 
God just needs a remnant of people who will obey. The government that I was on his shoulders, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is at hand. In Matthew 4, uh, Matthew records uh, part of the message of Jesus. He says, repent. In Mark 114, 115, I am wrapping up here. He says, <coughs> after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When we get the counsel of God, the wonderful counsel, when we see God's kingdom breaking into our lives, the right and proper response is repent and believe. Repent and believe. You change your thinking. You change your heart. You line up your belief system with God's ways, his ways that are not our ways. You adjust your thinking. You adjust your heart. And you move forward in faith. Repent is that attitude, that belief adjustment. Align yourself with God's ways. Belief is walking it out in faith. I'm sure that uh, Gideon had to do that. He probably questioned God's methods, right? But ultimately, he trusted God's motive, and he knew the one he'd entrusted himself to, and he obeyed. Change his thinking to align with God's ways. And he moved forward in faith. And the Lord brought it back. You want to see God's kingdom come in your life in a greater way? The kingdom is near. The time is at hand. God's kingdom wants to break into your life. His reign and his rule wants to increase like yeast in a, a lump of dough in your life. It wants to grow and it wants to spread and it wants to permeate all aspects of your life. Way to partner with God is repent and believe. He'll bring you wonderful counsel. But you have to repent, change your mindset, line it up with His, and walk it out in a persistent obedience. I pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, you got me excited this, and I'm not sure how well I did communicating it, but I pray that your church would be stirred up. I pray individuals in this room would be stirred up to trust and submit to you, to look to your ways, not the ways of the world, and that your church would be stirred up to walk around and carry our jars of clay, like the apostles, like the disciples, like the martyrs, like the people in the book of Acts. They went around and they were broken for the beauty of your